people should not celebrate too much because Merkel won and the centre-right won in Holland and Macron won in France. The fact is, a lot of governments have adopted enough of the rhetoric and enough of the ideas that some of these ideas that were fringe have now gone mainstream. And so if the ideas win, it doesn't really matter who's in power. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined remotely by Sasha Polakow-Saransky and FP's Ty McCormick. Cameron Abadi, deputy editor of foreignpolicy.com, is in the studio with me. Sasha is the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Go Back to Where You Came From, The Backlash Against Immigration and the Fate of Western Democracy. He's an Open Society Foundations fellow and previously served as an op-ed editor at the New York Times and a senior editor at Foreign Affairs. Ty McCormick is FP's Africa editor. ER nerds, if you've got episode ideas or comments, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Welcome, ER listeners. This is part two of a special podcast. We're discussing FP's new special investigation, a big five-part series into Europe's plan to stop African migration. The first podcast, we discussed the reporting in Mali, in Niger, in Libya, and in Senegal. And in this second part of the podcast, we really want to get into the political and moral implications of this multi-billion dollar plan that European governments have put in place in the African continent to make sure migrants and refugees fleeing impoverishment and fleeing war never actually make it across the Mediterranean to European shores. Ty, I want to start with you. Um, Since you are on the ground in Africa reporting this out, um, so the EU uh, put together an effort back in 2015 to try and – a sort of development program – Um, to try and stem this wave of African migration to increase economic opportunities on the continent. Um, Tell us a little bit about what that program looked like. Sure. So so the Trust Fund for Africa, or the Emergency Trust Fund for Africa, as it's known, was launched at the what was the height of the refugee crisis, right? So it's becoming clear that more than a million people will apply for asylum in the European Union in 2015, which is nearly double the previous record, which is set the year that the Soviet Union collapsed, or actually the year after it collapsed in 1992. So it was it was an emergency measure by, by all accounts, and it was designed to fight migration at its source, just thousands of miles from Europe, mainly in Africa. And uh, the, the policies that are funded through it, I think, can be broken down roughly into two categories. There are these sort of softer development programs aimed at what the EU uh, dubbed the root causes of migration, uh, essentially trying to remake some of the poorest places on earth into attractive places to live. And then there are the much harder, more coercive programs, um, still often billed as development programs, by the way. Uh, but but coercive nonetheless, and they're designed to essentially forcibly stop migrants from traveling north to Europe. Talking about equipping militaries uh, like the Nigerian military, uh, which we wrote about in the series, which is essentially working as Europe's migrant hunters, cracking down on smugglers and preventing migrants from making it to Libya, from where they will jump off toward toward Europe. And then, of course, cozying up to the militias in Libya uh, that will hunt down and jail migrants. So that's kind of a broad uh, sort of sweeping explanation of what the trust fund was. Uh, And of course, what we found in our reporting is that 
there are problems with both categories of policies. The soft development ones are almost certainly destined to fail. Uh, in fact, uh, most of the economics literature suggests that they'll actually increase migration because development and migration tend to increase in tandem until you get to about middle income status, uh, which many of these countries are you know, nowhere close to. And the harder coercive ones are really, really ugly when you look at them up close. Uh, you know, they require basically that Europe adopt two completely contradictory value systems around human rights, one inside Europe and one outside, one where rights are respected and one where caging humans indefinitely in horrific conditions is sort of the cost of doing business. So, Cameron, how did Europe get to this point? I mean, obviously in 2015, there was that massive flow of human migration from the wars in Syria and Iraq and, and Afghanistan that we saw coming through Turkey. But what we explore in this series is the European statistics uh, organization said that this is a generational flow, We've that it's uh, one million people. They expect net migration to be one million people a year through 2040, or maybe it's 2050. Why did Europe feel the need to invest what is billions of euros in Africa? Well, I don't think it's an accident that the policies that Ty just described came precisely at the height of the crisis he mentioned. The crisis that we refer to as the Syrian migration crisis occurred in 2015. And as we all recall, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing wars in the Middle East, arriving in Europe and making their way towards Germany and other parts of Europe. Uh, we all remember that Germany had a very distinct uh, decision in early September of 2015 to essentially open its borders to migrants who uh, were not being welcomed elsewhere in Eastern Europe. And the result was that hundreds of thousands, I think uh, in total nearing one million migrants landed in Germany and they had to, to settle there. And this was both a decision that was praised around the world and it was praised in the United States and even among some Germans. But it also led to all sorts of political turbulence. It, uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of Germans were not prepared for the influx of migrants at that point. There was a rise of uh, populist uh, parties. The alternative for Deutschland party went from being a sort of anti-Euro party to an anti-refugee party overnight. And given all these political problems, and, and also it's worth saying Germany had uh, problems with its, with its neighbors because of this policy as well, who were upset at the idea that it was opening its borders to refugees. So it, as a result of all this, uh, Angela Merkel wanted to quickly U-turn uh, and, and look for a lot of ways to adjust. And she, in, in, with respect to Syria, she came up with this Turkey plan that sort of kept migrants in the Middle East. And I think the same general idea was to pose the question of whether it was possible to keep African migrants in Africa. And hence, this series of policies that together are supposed to persuade Africans not to try to venture to Europe, or if they do, to, to keep them away from Europe in the first place. Sasha, tell us a little bit about how this, these pressures and the generosity of certain countries. I mean, Sweden in particular was very generous. Greece absorbed enormous pressures. How did this affect the, the internal dynamics of, of European countries? And, and, and how did it play within the EU, the sort of decision-making bodies? Well, I think we've seen across Europe the rise of parties like Germany's IFD. In, in Holland, you have Kurt Wilders. PVV in France, you have Marine Le Pen. And even though these people have not come to power, their ideas have become very mainstream. And in part, I think they were reacting 
to a large influx of people, many of whom were Syrian refugees, many of whom were refugees from elsewhere, and some of whom were economic migrants coming coming from other countries. And when the EU failed to come up with a collective response, uh, it sort of fell to these national governments to deal with it. And the governments became very susceptible to attacks from the far right. And so what you saw from late 2015 onward is people like Wilders saying there's an Islamic invasion of Europe underway because some Syrian refugees were fleeing a war and trying to come to Holland. And you saw Le Pen echoing that sort of rhetoric in France. And as Cameron was saying, the IFD just won 13% recently, fueled by a similar kind of rhetoric in their campaign. And so a lot of these parties are demanding a tougher solution, and it's resonating with voters. And I think that one of the scarier things to come out of this whole debate is the far-right politicians that I've talked to, from Le Pen down in France and from Alexander Gauland down to the people in the street in Germany, they all mention as their sort of fantasy the Australian model, which seems far away from what we're talking about in Africa, but in fact it's very relevant because they come up with this idea that you can just send people offshore and they'll never set foot in Europe. And so the Australians have sent people to islands in the middle of the Pacific to have their asylum claims processed there and ensure that they never set foot on Australian territory. And what these European far-right leaders are talking about now is replicating that in Europe by paying off governments in North Africa to essentially warehouse these people in camps subsidized by European governments. And it seems a fringe idea now, but my worry, reading your reporting in in this series, is that as these numbers grow, and if the numbers you're talking about continue for the next few decades, these sorts of ideas that sound like they're the far-right fringe at the moment are going to become much more mainstream in Europe in the way that they have in another liberal democracy, Australia. Yeah, I think the question is, can a deterrent strategy and mass work? I mean, Australia is a very different context. It's an island far off. You know, the boats come from Indonesia bearing Afghani migrants and, and others. But there are not only can deterrence work, but, you know, isn't Europe and other – aren't other states bound to – by international law – to process asylum claims, to make uh, assessments as to whether people are refugees or economic migrants. You know, it seems like building uh, a wall across the Mediterranean or at least pushing them back into the Sahel of Africa probably won't work. Well, I would say that um, on the one hand, uh, as politicians in government Germany right now say, the policy is from their perspective, do seem to be working. Migration right now from Africa over the what's called the central Mediterranean route, which has been heavily trafficked recently, has gone down. Uh, It's dropped pretty precipitously over the summer at a time when it normally would go up. And so from their perspective, some combination of deterring people from leaving and while sticking with the commitments to human rights that you mentioned while sticking to the processing of asylum claims of people who do manage to arrive in Europe, that combination from their perspective both uh, you know, maintains 
the legality of the uh, from uh, from the European side and manages to, uh, to to reduce the flow of migrants. Now the question is, in the long term, as populations continue to grow, uh, as the inequalities between Europe and Africa continue to widen, uh, is that sustainable? And I think there's very good reasons to doubt. That that would that would be that combination of of, of uh, that mainstream sort of formula uh, that that Germany has helped craft is is going to is going to work for the long term. So, Cam, if you don't mind, I'd just love to jump in there and 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 respond. I think two two things that you you raise, uh, I'm not sure I would completely agree with. First is that I think yes, we've seen a, a a dip, a substantial dip in people crossing in the Central Mediterranean route, but we're already seeing. Uh, those numbers being displaced elsewhere. There's been a, a, a marked spike uh, in crossings from um, from Morocco to Spain, uh, and I think you know it's it's a sort of finger in the dam situation where you can displace these flows, but in the long term you're never going to stop them. And I think the 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 idea that Europe is even anywhere close to upholding its obligations under international law, even with the existing system, is very much uh, up for debate. I mean, I think that as our, as Peter Tinti's reporting from, from Libya shows, you know, this is, this is a system that is reviving essentially a modern day slave trade that Europe is underwriting, uh, with assistance to these kinds of detention facilities. So, uh, it's, it's in my opinion, kind of laughable to think that this is, this is upholding their legal obligations and as the flow increases, uh, as more and more people migrate because the labor force expands exponentially in Africa over the next 50 years, it's hard for me to believe that that would get uh, better rather than worse. Just to clarify, I'm not defending the European policy. I, I, I'm just trying to sort of explain what I heard in speaking with policymakers in Germany. And I don't doubt the kinds of shifts in migration that you're describing Tie. But I do think it's worth differentiating the short-term perspective from a longer-term perspective in terms of dealing with this challenge. Politicians like Angela Merkel are looking to sort of get to the next election. And Merkel, uh, in her recent election, uh, managed to stay in office. Uh, that is a success from her perspective in, in sort of dealing with this crisis. And of course, the result was also that we had a, a populist party get, you know, 13% in, in the polls. But Again, so there's that short-term perspective, and, and I think politicians are dealing with it like that. But but yeah, the long-term perspective also is clearly none of these are solutions. Uh, and 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 when when you start burrowing down and talking with folks, even the people crafting these policies, they'll tell you these that they know that this can't work forever. Do you think that European citizens have a sense of what is going on across the Mediterranean, paid for by their tax dollars in their names? I. Don't think so, because the politicians in Europe also aren't making a point of describing this for their for their public. See no evil, hear no evil. Keep yeah. our hands as clean as possible. Couch it as development aid. Couch it as development aid. It was called in Germany. They call it the Marshall Plan for Africa. Is one one aspect of this that that uh, resonates very well with Germans who uh, remember getting the Marshall Plan after World War II. You know, that's the extent they hear of it. Uh, maybe to some extent they don't want to hear about it. You know, it's it's a, it's an uncomfortable topic, and it's forcing them to sort of confront this dilemma that we're describing is something that is uncomfortable for a flight of Europeans. So, you know, the, at least from Germany, they didn't talk about it much in their big election, and, and, and so they probably don't know about it. And now the question then, of course, becomes when you hear about a slave trade in Libya that you're helping fund, how does the public respond to that? When that becomes symbolized in some sort of 
uh, discreet way, how are they going to respond? And I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. I think that one of the keys to all of this for politicians is keeping these people out of sight and out of mind so that the population doesn't actually have any idea what's going on. And that is convenient both from a political perspective and because it insulates these politicians from from any sort of blame uh, when it comes to human rights. But the fact is, as Ty was saying a minute ago, uh, there are already very questionable things being done by governments that we regard as liberal democracies that are parties to all of these treaties. And I think that one of the things that the Australians have pioneered that Europeans are now looking into emulating is how do you stop these people from ever setting foot on European territory so that we don't have any obligation as Europeans to process their claims under international legal standards. And so if you intercept people at sea and redirect them to another place, they argue that there is no obligation as Australia or Italy or Greece to absorb those people and process their asylum claims. And so my fear is long-term that when you see another crisis on the scale of the Syrian refugee crisis, and as Cameron was just saying, these are bound to come in the future. If we think about this long-term rather than short-term, as the politicians are, when a hurricane on the scale of Maria strikes Bangladesh and does what it just did to Puerto Rico, or if there's a drought in Egypt or some of the countries in West Africa that Ty's been reporting in, there's going to be a massive influx on an even greater scale than what we saw in 2015. And that's when these sort of small-bore solutions aren't going to work, and you're going to see European governments turning to even more extreme solutions than what they have now. And that, I think, is something worth worrying about now for people who care about human rights and and international legal obligations. Cameron, when you were reporting this in Germany, you know, which, as you said, was extraordinarily generous back in in 2015 during the Syrian refugee crisis, what were some of the the arguments and the and the conversations? Were these fears of of mass immigration about strains on the welfare state? Can German citizens not afford to pay for immig- for a new waves of immigrants? Can they not integrate them? I mean, Germany took a lot of high skilled Syrian laborers. And there are arguments out there that are contested by other parties that net immigration helps is an economic boon to countries. But part of this also strikes me that there are uglier questions of race and religion, much like we face in America and our immigration debates that are percolating across Europe. Yeah, I think that latter anxiety is really what's driving this, uh, that cultural anxiety, even that religious anxiety. There, there are economic questions here, and, and you hear arguments on both sides. You hear the fact that refugees can be a boon to the economy. You hear other people saying that uh, other studies in, in Germany uh, saying that, that uh, it's going to ultimately cost a lot of money to train and uh, teach everybody sufficient German in order to join the workforce. Um, but I don't think it's those debates that are really driving the, the, the migration debate in Germany. It really is the question of, um, is our national culture remaining the same? Uh, what does it mean to change our national culture by absorbing people who don't uh, share our uh, background and our, our, our history? You know, you use the term ugly as, a, as, a, as, a, as an adjective, and in some ways it is, in other ways... Um, you know, we can try to be uh, empathetic to that those anxieties. I, in Germany, they're, they're, 
Uh, it's not a place where traditionally they've had enormous migration, and now they're being obliged to confront it. That's not. An, I don't mean to excuse that that uh, the nastier aspects of that, but there are real troubles adjusting culturally to this idea that the country is uh, a place that that accepts m- mass migration and. Then the question is whether the politicians can sort of educate their publics about this. Uh, and, and this is, again, where the sort of hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. They don't talk about this issue. And, uh, you know, you could say it's a politician's job to try to educate, persuade the public to accept things that are uncomfortable, but that they may have to accept uh, just given the situation. And um, we don't really see much of that uh, at all going on in, in Germany, at least, at least in my observation. If I could just add something to that, one of the things I noticed in, in my reporting in Germany is the divide between the old East and the old West. If you talk to people in what used to be East Germany or politicians who come from there, there's no sense of this humanitarian obligation or, oh, we're so rich and we owe it to the rest of the world, or even some of the historical guilt that was at play um, during the refugee crisis, and so there's a lot of resentment. And if you look at the map of the recent election and where the IFD performed most strongly, it's very clear that that sort of eastern ring uh, of what used to be East Germany to the east and south of Berlin is where they were strongest. And so there's also a divide uh, between voters in, in what was always a prosperous part of the country and what until a few decades ago was not at all. And I think just to answer briefly Ben's question about the welfare state, I think that this actually has become a major issue in some other European countries, especially places like Denmark and France, where the new far-right parties have explicitly targeted old left voters. So what you've seen in places like Denmark is old social democrats being courted by the Danish People's Party very successfully. Uh, In Holland, the Labour Party pretty much going from being the largest or second largest party in the country to virtually nothing in the last election. And in France, Marine Le Pen openly going after former communist voters and trying to lure them to the far right on the grounds that we will protect the welfare state, but for us, the native French or the native Dutch, the native Danes, and not give any of these generous benefits that we so enjoy in our lovely country to these foreigners who are streaming in. And that political program has been very effective in shaking up the entire landscape and sort of blurring the old traditional lines between left and right that used to be defined by economic policy, but are now much more defined by immigration policy. Yeah, I mean, Germany has had the benefit also of having a booming economy and have managed to kind of defer some of those economic questions a little bit because, uh, you know, they're practically at full employment right now and have been, you know, beneficiaries of the euro crisis, if anything. And and yeah, also, Sasha, your point about the Eastern Germany, from my perspective, Eastern Germany, former Eastern Germany is essentially an Eastern European country. It has, uh, it, it, uh, and with good reason. It has the same history of those Eastern European countries that don't have histories of migration during the Cold War and just have a, and, and so are, are, are bristling even much more, much more extremely than, than other parts of Europe at, at this idea of accepting migration and on, on a large scale. Sasha, one of the countries we, uh, I guess most people haven't heard about facing, uh, I guess, these political tensions so much of is Italy. But Lampedusa is this island that's sort of off the coast of Tunisia, Libya. It, Ty, correct me if I'm wrong, but this has been one of the main receiving points of the central Mediterranean route. So we've got tens of thousands of African migrants arriving in Lampedusa where they need to be processed for 
asylum claims. Are they held there in Lampedusa? Um, I mean, Italy has said it wants its borders open so it can sort of export this problem into the rest of Europe. I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's absolutely right. But it's, you know, it's it, the border between Africa and Europe is, you know, it, it, it's very close. It's, we're talking about 200 miles here of 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 water. And uh, in reality, actually, most of the migrants now, or I guess less so now, because a lot of these NGOs have suspended their search and rescue operations. But for a while, uh, you know, many of the migrants who were arriving in Italy, they'd only traveled, you know, 12 nautical miles or so off the coast of Libya before they were rescued. Uh, because, of course, the, the boats that the smugglers are using are these inflatable dinghies that are never going to make it to 200 miles uh, they're not designed to make it 200 miles. They're designed to get out of, uh, get into international waters, essentially, and then broadcast a kind of emergency beacon. And then, you know, whether it's MSF or one of these other NGOs that does search and rescue will come and, um, you know, they will, they'll help the migrants to um, board the ship and then they'll take them ashore. Um, so they're being processed all over Italy. Um and and I think I mean it's an interesting question because as as Cam writes in his reporting, you know what 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 Germany um, sort of settles on as a solution is is what Europe will settle on, or at least Germany is very important to the European solution. But Germany is not bearing the brunt of this anymore. It was in 2015, but now the crisis has kind of moved to other states, other countries that are much less uh, able to address the the incoming migrants because their economies are not nearly as strong. And also Italy's bureaucracy is not nearly as strong. I mean, they're really having trouble uh, processing these migration, these asylum claims. Uh, this is this is part of the issue is that you have such uh, a backlog. You have tens and tens of thousands of people. The Italian government is sort of proven unable to quickly or expeditiously get through all those claims. And, and then the question is, well, what do you do with so many people arriving in your country? And then they, that's why they tend to let them invite them to go elsewhere in Europe or they sort of melt into the shadow economy. This is a question of what do European states owe each other in this respect? And people, the policymakers in Germany understand that point, Ty. And I think the, the, the thing is, is that what to what type of help do they owe other parts of Europe? I think this becomes the question that, get, that, that gets posed. And rather than uh, they, right now, at least they don't feel comfortable taking migrants off of their, uh, the hands of the border countries, but maybe they can offer assistance financially, or maybe they can offer bureaucratic assistance. Maybe they can sort of educate Italian bureaucrats to process those applications more efficiently. Uh, but, but, uh, but you're right that, that beyond that, like really sort of cooperating as a whole is not something that, uh, because that would also demand a public debate. And again, we return to the point that, that, that governments don't want to talk about this stuff out loud. Sasha, is there any ray of light here? Months ago when we were thinking about Brexit and its sort of domino effect across the European continent, the rise of Le Pen, as you said, and AFD in Germany, there was a sense that the, uh, a growing far right, and unquestionably it is growing, but there was a sense that they could dominate politics in some of these countries. And you know, Cameron, as you write in your piece, definitely the centrist parties have moved to the right to accommodate some of these forces. But is there at least a, I don't know, a stay of execution for some of these more extreme policies, Sasha? Well, I think people should not celebrate too much because Merkel won and the center-right won in Holland and Macron won in France. I mean, yes, that 
uh, is a relief to people who were afraid that Le Pen might become president of France. But the fact is that a lot of governments have adopted enough of the rhetoric and enough of the ideas that some of these ideas that were fringe have now gone mainstream. And so if the ideas win, it doesn't really matter uh, who's in power. I will say, though, that Merkel has been admirable in her rhetoric, at least, in her defense of, of European values, and so has the new French government. I think that one of the the tests here is, can you be tough and sensible in terms of coming up with a policy that stops a mass influx, but is also humane on some level and doesn't cave into the sort of Islamophobic civilizational rhetoric that some of these far-right parties are using. And I think that Merkel and Macron are examples of, of politicians who've done that. And, you know, the final French presidential debate was was one example of this that was very in your face, where Macron and Le Pen were sitting across the table from each other, and he called her the high priestess of fear and said, you know, France can't succumb to your kind of rhetoric. And so I think that that may be a ray of hope. But as I was saying before, and, and everyone else on this podcast, if we start to think about this long term, uh, it gets much more complicated, because at a certain point, there will be forces that not even economic aid and military intervention will be able to control. And I think that most European governments, even the well-intentioned ones at this point, are are still thinking short-term and believing that they'll be able to deal with the scale of this problem. And that may be true today, but it won't be true when the next crisis hits. I think you're absolutely right, Sasha, that it's important, critically important, that, that uh, we start shifting to this long-term question. Uh, and that's tr- something I tried and I wanted to report on. Uh, what would a long-term solution even look like? What is even a possibility for something that would be sustainable? I, I basically came across sort of two ideas. And one of them was this kind of Paul Romer-esque idea about creating charter cities in Africa that Europe could fund and, and basically uh, point people in the direction of going to staying in Africa by going to the, those cities. And I think there's all sorts of legal problems with that, not, not to mention the kind of resonance with, with European colonialism that's problematic. This other, the other more promising idea I came across was something that would involve that was that was proposed by um, Gerald Knaus, who who helped design the Turkey migration policy that that that, that can be fairly criticized, but. Um, but the plan he came up with for, for Africa was basically that Europe needs to create some way of accepting legal African migration and, and as, on, on some sufficient scale that would at least would reduce the pressure of the illegal migration. And that, uh, you know, he had a set of policies. But but again, this would demand that, that mainstream politicians in Europe tell their publics that they need to accept a certain amount of legal migration uh, over official channels in order to reduce the amount of the crisis, the feeling of crisis that that's going to always threaten otherwise. That, to me, struck me as promising, but um, whether anyone takes it up before danger looms is, is, is another question. Well, I don't want to give it all away. Listeners, you have to go and check this out. It'll be on our homepage. It's got exceptional photography, really riveting reporting from inside smuggler havens and prisons in Libya. So please go check it out. Cameron, Ty, Sasha, thank you for being with us today. Talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. You can find FP's special investigation at europeslamsitsgates.foreignpolicy.com. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. 
For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.